Welcome to the Party Smith America podcast. This is volume 38, and what a conversation. It's someone about whom I have long, long been fascinated, uh, by whom I have long wondered what the real story was, and I've read so much about him. Uh, I have wondered how he got to his current place, and I learned a lot about him in an article I wrote, which we'll discuss in this interview. Ryan Leaf, the second overall pick in the 1998 NFL Draft, uh, after a tremendous Heisman finalist season at Washington State University out of Wazoo, and uh, everything that came after it, the very short-lived NFL career, the public persona that was not the best, and how that affects a man, and what really led to his drug addiction, what really led to him ending up in prison, and how all of those things molded uh, the man that is, in his estimation, the best version of himself ever. Fascinating conversation with a fascinating person, and I can't wait for you guys to hear Ryan's story. His vulnerability will be shocking to you. His honesty is striking, and that honesty is now a catalyst for him to help other people battling substance abuse, to help other people who are addicted to things like fame. And fame is an addiction. He and I get into that too and the impact of that addiction. It's very real for a whole lot of people. I just can't wait for you guys to hear it and I can't wait to hear your feedback on it. But before we get to my wide-ranging conversation with Ryan Leaf. I want to discuss Dollar Shave Club with you guys for just a moment. I love that Dollar Shave Club has everything I need to look, feel, and smell my best. What I love even more is the fact that I never have to go to the store. That's because, one, Dollar Shave Club delivers everything I need directly to my door, and two, they keep me fully stocked on what I use so I don't run out. Here's how it works. It's very easy. Dollar Shave Club has everything you need to get ready no matter what you're getting ready for. They have you covered head to toe from your hair, skin, face, you name it, they have it. And they have this new program where they automatically keep you stocked up on the products you use. You determine what you want, when you want it, and it shows up right at your door from once a month to once every six months. Plus, with their handsome discount, the more you buy, the more you save. Right now, they've got a bunch of starter sets you can try for just $5, like their oral care kit. After that, the restock box ships regular-sized products at a regular price. So what are you waiting for? Get your starter set for just 5 bucks right now at dollarshaveclub.com slash smith. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash smith. You won't be disappointed. Their products are amazing, and it's so easy. It shows up right at your door. dollarshaveclub.com slash smith. Now it's time for my conversation with Ryan Leaf. And again, I'm telling you guys, Having had the great opportunity to interview so many amazing, interesting people, the greatest interviews and the greatest pieces often include shocking honesty, and this is one of those. It's going to be extremely interesting to you to hear a man who had everything in the eyes of the world, a whole lot of money, a whole lot of fame, unbelievable success, and he was a shell of a human. Until humility hit him square in the face. What a conversation. So without further ado, here's my conversation with former NFL quarterback Ryan Leaf. Ryan, your story has long fascinated me, brother. And in you I see this grace and understanding that comes with humility and vulnerability. 
And as I began to study for this and really dive into your journey, it hit me. I don't even know where in the hell to start. So <laughs> I'll try, I'll try it this way. If you were chatting with someone who knew absolutely nothing of your story, how would you detail that journey? How would you describe your path? Well, I, you know, I, I don't mean to minimize it ever, you know, because it was something that I've walked through and a lot of people have walked through, but I, I, I do think that it was just a rough patch that I had to get through. It's, it's life, you know, life, life isn't necessarily fair. It's how you deal with it that matters. And I just, you know, I just dealt with it in a horribly unhealthy way for so long. And, and having my eyes opened and being humbled in a way of, of going to prison, I think was, and being introduced to to the service of other human beings, I think it, it just proved that no matter where you are, your lot in life, you can always be of service to another human being, regardless of if you're a starting NFL quarterback or if you are in a prison cell in Montana. You know, you you can choose that. And in a life, in a world that takes so much choice away from you um, and control, that you actually can, can control those choices, right, to deal with something in a healthy positive way or a negative and toxic one. So that's usually how I probably tell people. I mean, when I met my fiance, like within the first 15 minutes, I told her, because uh, I'd met her about five months out of prison, and I told her that within the first 15 minutes that, you know, so I just got out of prison. And it turns out it was probably <laughs> one of the best uh, best uh, come on lines there is, because she, she tells people all the time that, that I was the most honest man she'd ever met. And that, that's a really neat definition as a human being to have that is a wonderful definition to have uh i do have to know what how did she respond in the moment that you stated that though? <laughs> um i looked at her eyes i just you know i can be googled and it had happened before in the five months i had been out where i was talking to a young lady and and uh i didn't necessarily mention it and one of her uh employees or in, employers mentioned and she looked me she googled me and you can be really frightened by something you, you read on Google and stuff like that. So I just, I thought it would be to nip it in the bud of sorts and say, Hey, this is who I am boils and all. And I, I think you're really special. I'd love to get to know you if you, if you're willing to afford me that opportunity. And, and she did. And it, uh, you know, the rest is kind of history. We have a, a little one-year-old son now and we're in the process of, of figuring out uh, our lives together. And it all kind of started from a simple, uh, honest and transparent uh, statement about where I was in my life. I read the amazing story that you wrote uh, in April 2017 for the Players' Tribune. Your honesty in that piece is striking, Ryan. What was it like admitting those details about yourself? It was difficult, right? It took me about three months to write it. Uh, I'd been approached by the Players' Tribune at the Super Bowl in Houston that year, and we worked on it hard. You know, I'd done a couple things. I'd gone to the... Uh, the scouting combine for the NFL worked with the young men and realized that, uh, you know, how I'm viewed, you know, and, and, and that's okay. And I can use it as a, a teaching tool and a positive. And it's not a, don't do what I don't do what I did type of, uh, you know, education. It's, it's cause I done, I did a lot of things right as well to get to the place where I was at. So there's, there's a mixture of both. I, they don't all have to be uh, one thing. They can be both. You can be, uh, you can have failed in your life, and you have been successful, and all those stories are strong. And since my name had been kept in the media for so long, it, it allowed for me to try to do the best possible thing I could. And 
and that is it doesn't cost me anything to be honest and transparent. I always thought it costed me something. I just I thought there was such a great cost to to showing what I consider weakness or or failure. And it doesn't. It doesn't cost me anything. In fact, it makes me more I think attractive to relationships, friendships, uh, meaningful job opportunities, things like that. It just it in fact has much more meaning. And I think that's what I did when I approached the the Players' Tribune article, and I just wanted to be as honest as possible because everybody pretty much knew it. I just don't think they've ever heard me totally be accountable for my actions and what my part was in it. It was phenomenal, Uh, and I always say, I've said it actually on this podcast many times and in countless interviews, that the greatest pieces that carry the most impact and have the greatest copyright, the greatest sustenance and longevity are vulnerable ones. And it does not get more vulnerable than admitting drug addiction, prison, suicide attempts, all of these things that you chronicle in there. But I will tell you that the funniest and best part of that piece is what you said is the one thing you would change. The 11th commandment, don't be a dick. (laughs) Well, it was the, it was the most like the best vernacular I could think of when it came to just, you know, I wish I would have treated people better. You know, that's that's the one thing I probably could have really controlled and, and done differently. I think the rest of it was meaningful and it, and it applied to how I, who I've become now. So it's kind of a, a slippery slope there on whether I would have done things differently. I don't know. I could have be just this, you know, forty-two-year-old with a couple Super Bowl rings, and I, that's not that's not who I want to be. You know, I want to I want to be a different person. Football is a fleeting thing. Um, it's an institution in this country, but it's fleeting. And sometimes you are your identity is so ingrained in that that the trans the transformation or the transition from from football player to civilian and and what happens from there, you know, you tend to believe you're more important and you are a dick. And that's who I was. And I just I would have changed that. But it also allowed me to, um, you know, take stock in who I who I was and how I treated people because there are many stories out there of how I treated people and they are more than welcoming to tell me <laughs> how I was addicted to them. <laughs> when did humility enter your life? Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I'd never been marginalized in my life. Really. I grew up in a, uh, a very suburban middle-class white community. Uh, I think when the judge um, said to me, Mr. Leaf, you, you have no value to society. I'm going to warehouse you and give you a number. I think that was that was a humbling thing. I, I didn't see it at the time. It took some time while I was in there. I think while I was in prison, I was surrounded by a, a, a large um, population of Native Americans here, there in 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 Montana. The, the reservations are are very commonplace in my home state, and I think the story came out about. Uh, the Washington football team, uh, the professional Washington football team and their mascot and in the open-mindedness and and the marginalization of that. And I, I, I thought it was pretty disparaging. And uh, so I even, I, I even during that process reached out to some of the, my, my fellow inmates who were native American and asked them about it and asked them if they were offended by the, uh, the name of the mascot. And most of them, most of their responses to me was, was no, we've been called worse. And it, and they almost felt like they were being celebrated in a way. And then I asked them the question whether I could. Uh, so if I saw you on the other side of the, the pod and I just yelled out, hey, Redskin, 
would that offend you? And they, they immediately looked at me like, no, you, you, no, don't do that. And that the marginalization of something like that and finding myself in that place opened my eyes to different plights in, in everybody's life and ones that I had closed myself off to. And I think that for me, was the first time I developed this humility and understanding that when I move forward, everything, nothing could be about me anymore, right? It, it had to be about everybody else and somebody else and empathy and those things. I'd spent too much of my life taking and making it about myself. And it took a long time. And you would think that 38 years into your life that you, you'd have that figured out, but I didn't. I think some people figure that out earlier on in life. They, they struggle when they get out of college, they have to deal with a lot of things. There's some marginalization. They, they see different, different uh, optics uh, on, on what they're looking at. And I just hadn't done it. And I think the, I never thought I'd be able to, you know, sit and tell you, Marty, that I'm grateful for having spent 32 months in prison. I, I mean, I don't recommend it to anybody, but I, I'm, and I'm really grateful for that opportunity because um, though it was three years of my life taken away because of my actions, uh, I think it will add, add to my longevity in life because of, of the, of the way I look at things and the way I approach things now differently. We'll get into drug abuse in just a moment because that's certainly part of your story. But basically it seems like what you're saying to me is the narcissism part of this. I, I personally believe fame is a drug. How did Definitely. fame addiction? How did fame addiction impact you? Oh, it's 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 crazy, right? You, especially when you go to college in a small town, um, and then all of a sudden you are what people consider the greatest quarterback in the country, next to Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning at the time. So it, it uh, and and then also the drug of it being infamy. You know, Peyton was kind of the golden child aspect, and I sort of was given the black hat. And instead of stepping in and trying to tell everybody, no, that's not the case, I just kind of went along with it and uh, and kind of watched how Dennis Rodman had had done his thing. And it was a brand. And I wasn't really caring what other people thought of me because, or at least I didn't care that they thought of me in a bad way, just as long as they were thinking of me. And I think that's the fame part of it that you described. It's all about you. That's the narcissism in it. As long as everybody's talking about you, it doesn't, have to, it doesn't matter. I mean, your ego takes some hits when people are, are negative. But as long as you're performing on the football field, they can hate you. And I think that happened a lot in college for me. And I could always step out on a, on a Saturday afternoon and make all those kind of whispers go away because I perform well. Now, the NFL, I was not doing that. I was struggling. I wasn't performing well. And if you do that, you can't, your central nervous system just can't deal with it, right? You're, you're battling the best defenses in the world every week, as well as the media and the fan base. And that's just not going to work. How would you describe your NFL career? Um, that's a hard one because I, I immediately, when I hear that, I immediately go failure. And it's just not the truth, right? The average length of an NFL career is like 2.8 years. And I would play four years. I think the expectations that not only I have, but what everybody else had and you know, arguably up against the, the best quarterback to ever play in Peyton Manning, it, it makes it for more more fodder. But I think anybody who makes it to the NFL, it's the 1% of the 1% is, is a success. And I got to continue to remind myself that. And not in a egotistical way, just as a comforting, understanding way. And, and know that I had accomplished something really great. But also to be accountable to myself, 
know that I let an opportunity slip through my fingertips because of how I dealt with it as well. It was interesting that so many teams saw the physical gifts. So many teams, once you were done with the Chargers, what was it? Cowboys, Bucks, Seahawks, all saw, all right, this guy's got a lot of physical gifts. Yeah, his shoulder might be a little, a wrist, right? His wrist might be a little yeah. bum right now. We're going to let him heal up and, and give him a chance. The Seahawks thing intrigued me the most. You got Mike Holmgren, who was this offensive genius, and sees great talent in you, and ultimately you make the decision, man, I'm done with this. What was that moment? Because that moment, for anybody regardless of level, is a difficult moment when you say, I can't do it, or it's over. I was just, yeah, I was um, I was at a place where I was just so sick and tired of being beat up physically as well as figuratively, I guess, from the media and, and, and the critics, you know, clamoring in the background, kind of the, the word bust. I also was depressed. I was clinically depressed. I hadn't addressed it. I had a real hard time staying in shape. I was really embarrassed to show up at Seattle camp, you know, 10 or 15 pounds overweight and getting fined. That was a big mitigating factor for me. The embarrassment of that, there was a lot of depression there. That's, that's why there was a mental health issue. And of course, at the time, no one was really speaking out about mental health issues. And what it said to, to people in the locker room is that I was weak and I wasn't, and I was lazy. And as I found out over time, depression can be so debilitating that you cannot even get out of bed. You don't have the energy to, to go work out or do anything like that. So I learned about this stuff after the fact. If I would have had the, you know, the forward thinking to, to tell you know, a team psychologist or anybody that, hey, I was struggling with this. Maybe there was a, a path to a positive ending out of all this. But I just, I didn't, there wasn't, didn't there wasn't exist. outlets, outlets or uh, assists at all in that aspect of things. And I just, I struggled with it because I thought I was weak and I thought I was, right. and my be- my only answer to that was to just quit and to quit something I wanted to do since I was four years old. You know, I'm, I've always, always had to look back on it and think like, what a terrible mistake I made especially with the stuff that I know now that I know that there are treatments and, 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 and assisted living type of things that can help me through that process. I just, I just didn't know they existed. Going to team doctors in that era and admitting depression and admitting how debilitating a mental health issue is did not exist at that time. That was no, not part it, it, of the narrative. That, that is a very new part of the American sporting narrative, Ryan. It is. It is. And, you know, it was, I, I didn't, I also didn't know what it was at the time. I just kind of thought I was apathetic a little bit and I was being told how bad I was and what a horrible person I was. And I, I tended to believe it. Right. And I, I thought I had the, I still thought I had these three pillars of success, you know, money, power, and prestige. And I, that would that would carry on regardless of if I was playing. The prestige might have a little bit of a tarnish, but you know, former NFL quarterback was still good enough, and the money really, really was was another drug, right? Uh, before there was sure. the substance abuse part of it, money was really the drug and the power and the fame of it all, like you talked about. And so, uh, the last thing I could do is show any weakness to anybody. Like, uh, you know, I I couldn't go into a locker room and, and look the guys that were supposed to be my brothers and my teammates in the eye and say. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm hurting here. Please help me. Um, that just, that was foreign. That wasn't seen. And we've seen a bunch of our brothers die uh, over the last decade 
because of CTE and mental health issues because they were unwilling to ask for help and they thought their only way out was to take their own life. And I was right there. That leads me to Junior Seau, uh, one of your former teammates whom you've admitted tried very hard to help you and to hold your hand through that rookie scenario that was difficult for you. What was it like losing Junior for you? Well, it, it was hard. Junior was uh, – first he was a teammate, and, and we're all we're all part of a brotherhood of any of us who got to play in the NFL. He was just exceptional at it. He worked really hard. Uh, like you said, I, I wish I would have just taken his hand and followed him, learned how to be a professional. But again, I don't know if I could have told him when I was struggling with the things I was struggling with because, as we found out, he was in the exact same spot and wasn't able to do it himself either. You know, you're a, a gladiator when you're a football player. You don't show weakness by saying you are struggling with anything. Um, you go see a doctor to get pain meds. You don't go see a doctor to try to help with your mental health. That's not that's not how things worked in those days or, or have really up to this point. And so when that happened to him, I knew – I knew when the accident was reported a few years before when he drove his car uh, off a, a bluff in Oceanside and everybody kind of tried to cover it up. I, I knew I knew exactly what, what was what was going on. Uh, I just didn't have the wherewithal to reach out and offer my help either. So I feel I feel there's a bit of survivor's guilt on my end because I tell you right now, my story is impactful to, to those who, who hear it because we all walk the same walk. But if if it was Junior Seau standing up in these auditoriums and in front of people, um, I just feel like it would carry so much more weight. He, his influence and, and his ability not to be a role model, but as a success on the football field, but as all as well as a, as a human being who still struggles with these things, uh, would have been so impactful. And I'm, I, I, I feel awful that he's not here for for everybody else, for himself, for his family, because. You know, he just didn't feel comfortable telling somebody how he was how he was doing, how he was hurting, and how he needed help. You noted the substance abuse just a moment ago, Ryan. Let's let's dive into that just a moment. What role does drug addiction play in your story? Well, it, it plays a part just because of it was a symptom, right? The, the mental health side of things is the foundation of it all. Many people use mood altering substances uh, to deal with these things, whether it's drugs, alcohol, sex gambling, food, all those things. Those are all mood-altering substances. Um, the only drug I've ever taken in my life is, is, is an opiate. I was introduced to it in college after I had surgery. It worked for my physical pain as well as the pros. Um, and then when it was all said and done, uh, I was uh, in Vegas for a fight and had dealt with some an evening of uh, similarities that I've dealt with where, you know, my ego and my self-esteem was really pounded. My depression took over. An acquaintance of mine offered me some Vicodin. Uh, I abused it for the first time, and it worked. It took away that emotional pain. And that's it worked for me. I mean, if it would have been alcohol, I probably would have found a way to use that. If it had been you know, sex or, or, or gambling or anything like that, I, I would have found any way not to feel what I was feeling. That's what, that's what substances of abuse do. And for me, it was, it was Vicodin, it was opiates. Uh, and it and it and it worked, and that would be my life for about eight years, where it was simply just trying to mask the real life feelings. I was self medicating. I wasn't willing to or able to address what was really going on, and I didn't want anybody else to see it. 
and I had enough wherewithal to be a kind of a functioning addict until I wasn't. And that always is what happens. It never gets better. You're never a functioning addict until you get better. You usually get to the bottom as a functioning addict, and then you have to rebuild your life, and that's exactly what happened with me. I can't imagine... I just can't imagine that cycle. What's it like to be in that cycle? Well, I, I, it's, it's, you know, it's hard to explain to anybody else the obsession that happens, and it can happen so quickly with opiates and how they affect the brain and the psychological effect. I mean, there were times where I would uh, be in somebody's house in, in my local Montana hometown looking for pills, and I'd have all this shame and guilt around what I was, who I was and what I was doing, but the ends justified the means once the pills were in my hand. They weren't even in my system yet. That's the psychological effect of them and the obsession that I had. And as soon as I had them and I knew I was going to be, I guess, safe in my mind, that I wasn't going to feel any of those things, the guilt, the shame, the depression, all of that, I knew everything was going to be fine. But it only lasts for so long. And the more you used over years and years and years, your tolerance goes up and it just doesn't last as long. So you have to continue and you become more rabid and more obsessive until finally either you get accosted by what you're doing and made to face the consequences or you die. There isn't, there isn't a third direction. There's either you get help and you develop a 180 degree different lifestyle or you're dead. That's, that's just how it was. And that's, and that's where I was going. And luckily the local sheriff's department in my hometown showed up and saved my life. It's uh, I mean, it's just your your honesty is something, man. I, I look, man. That, this is this is rampant across the United States of America. It's it is. not a localized problem, and I know that you now have made it part of your life's work to help people in similar situations to that which you found yourself in. So, describe the opioid epidemic in this nation for someone who sees it so often. Well, it's just it's just it's just so easily accessible um, that and, and I know that they're taking approaches to that differently, but it's just such an easy answer for somebody to take a little white pill and not feel any of that stuff than to look at other human being in the eye and say, I'm really struggling here. Please help me. That's just it's so foreign. We don't see it. And then a lot of times if we do get past that point where we are able to tell somebody else hey, I'm, I'm really struggling, I need help here. When the help is provided, it doesn't line up with what our self-will uh, thinks our help should look like, and we're not accepting. I tell anybody who I'm dealing with when it comes to a substance abuse, abuse issue, um, I ask them the question, what are you willing to do to, to be sober? And if the answer isn't anything, there's nothing we can do about it from that point on. If they want to do it their way, their way doesn't work, right? My way, my way, my best thinking took me to a prison cell. So clearly my way doesn't work. I needed help. I needed to completely surrender and then accept the help from people who had been through what I was going through and had come out the other side. And that's what it's all about. And that's why I do what I do. Because once you come out that other side, you become this lighthouse. And my sponsor taught me this long ago. You're this lighthouse and you're rooted in the foundation and you don't see lighthouses running around the harbor looking for boats, right? You, you become the safe harbor for people. You can't convince them. You can't want it more than anybody else. You can provide that information. That's the only part you can control. And they have to come to you and want it, surrender, and accept it. 
I wonder if people uh, have come to you and noted openly that your story impacted their lives or changed their lives or were the catalyst for them making the determination that they have a problem and need to change. Has that happened? And, and if so, what's that moment like? What, what's that emotion for you? Yeah, it's not the intent. I mean, you hope somebody hears, and but it's been it's been countless. And it's great. I'll give you an example. I, I did a, Jay Glazer and I have become really close, and he helped me through a bunch of stuff and helped me move forward, especially in the broadcasting side of things. But we did a special on Fox, uh, on Fox NFL Sunday. And it was only five minutes, and it was around Christmas time, but it impacted a ton of people. And this one in particular, I got a message, a direct message on Twitter about 90 days later. And it said, my name is so-and-so. And and I saw uh, your special with Jay Glaser uh, 92 days ago. I want to tell you that I checked myself into rehab the next day and I'm 93 sober, 93 days sober today. So that's the perfect example of, of what can change. For me, it was Chris Heron. For me, it was Louis Zamperini and Unbroken, the book I wrote, I read in in prison. It, it these were these were impactful stories for me. Uh, Louis went through so much this this post traumatic stress from the war, being captive, coming home, becoming an alcoholic, and finding this new way. Same with Chris Heron. This, their stories, um, there were role models for me. They were people who had done what I wasn't capable of doing. And they had a they had a game plan. They had a path for me, and I surrounded myself with those types of people. And by telling my story, that allows for that to continue and continue and continue. When I work with a young man or a young woman, you know, down the stretch, I say, okay, now it's your your turn to give back. You have to go out and tell your story. That's how you are of service. You don't have to donate money or, or give clothes or anything like that. But if you just share with another human being your story of adversity in life and how you got through it, that's the being of service. That's the exact thing anybody in this world can do. You can do it. Anybody can do that part of it. And and that's what's really changed for me. There's never not an opportunity where I can't be of service to another human being simply by looking them in the eye, having some empathy, and sharing some life experience with them in any moment. That's absolutely true. Uh, I got a couple of other things for you, and I'll get you out of here. I've kept you too long already. But <laughs> okay. you've, mentioned, you've mentioned Peyton several times, and – you two are inextricably linked for eternity because of the draft and because of the comparisons to one another as players in that moment. So I wonder, what, what time have you spent with Peyton? What's your relationship with him like? Well, it's been a while since I've seen him. Um, we've become reacquainted since, I got, since I've gotten out of prison. We talk from time to time and text each other just to kind of see how one another are. You know, he's a dad and uh, 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 an insurance salesman, essentially. <laughs> and, uh, and so we, we, we rib each other with that a little bit. But uh, 21 years later, from that Heisman Trophy group of Charles Woodson, Randy Moss, Peyton Manning, and myself, which was an unbelievable class. Insane. 21 years later, no matter the ups and downs, mostly ups on their end, and a lot of downs and ups and downs on my end were arguably in the same, in the same spot, all of us, you know, we, I don't know per- personally if they're all 
really happy and content. It, it seems that way. I know I am. Um, we're we're past football. We're entering the next phase in our lives, and it really is proof that no matter what happens to you, no matter what, as long as you keep getting up and you ask for help, you can get to that place and have the life of your dreams. And I think Peyton has it. It was a different path than mine, but I think I have it, and it was definitely a different path for me. Uh, he's been a solid individual. He's definitely a person I could have been resentful of, uh, watching him have so much success. But his family, himself, have always been amazing to me. And it goes back to the part where I talked about at the beginning with you. Don't be a dick. He was never a dick. He was always, he easily could have been, he easily could have sent slights my way about how silly it was that people compared us early on in our career because he was so much more outstanding and and had the ability to to be a better professional. Never happened, right? That says so much about him as an individual, him and his family. And and I think him and I will, like you said, we're going to be linked the rest of our lives, and I'm glad for that because um, it's pretty good company to keep. I appreciate you, man. What an amazing conversation. What amazing insight. It's uh, I'm better for it. I appreciate your time so much, Ryan. I appreciate your time too, Marty. I've always been a big fan and love your contribution to college football. I, you know, it's the coolest thing there is out there, college football, and I'm, I'm proud to be a part of it with you. Thank you. Told you guys, it was unbelievable. I love chatting with folks like that. I love to learn the story. I love to learn the path. And when you're that honest and willing to be that vulnerable because you've made it to rock bottom, and there's not a whole lot anybody can say that you haven't already lived and the public doesn't know and for which you've not already been ridiculed. It kind of reminds me in an opaque way. Travis, you remember that scene in 8 Mile when Rabbit is about to do a battle rap with Papa Doc and he says every single slight about himself that Papa Doc ever could have dreamed of and Papa Doc is rendered speechless? It's a great scene. It's a great scene. Man, it's a great scene. And it's a level of self-confidence in who you are and the journey that you've had and the path that you've taken that is striking. And I admire Ryan for that. I admire Ryan for the willingness to use his own story to benefit other people, to be that vulnerable and to admit that much failure and that much hurt and that much pain and rock bottom. I mean, the this guy was sitting in his bathroom all right with a knife to his wrist putting cuts in his wrist and didn't know what to do he had made it to the point where he didn't want to live anymore and look that story that we referenced that players tribune story i implore you guys to go read it you just sit there with your jaw dropped because he's so honest that honesty is going to change lives you heard him note how it it did change lives already and it's going to continue to change lives because again when there is this fall from grace the united states of america loves a comeback story we love to just rip people apart at the to shreds we love to hurt and then once there is so much hurt that there can be no more hurt all of a sudden we like to build back up and this is one hell of a great comeback story i'm really appreciative of him and proud of him so thank you so much to ryan for for that story i'm a better man for it 
I think you guys will reflect on your own lives in some way, having heard it. Uh, I know that I am and I will continue to. Uh, what an amazing testimony. Just an amazing testimony. So thank you to him. Thank you to you guys so much for listening. Thank you so much to Travis. Travis uh, worked on getting Ryan for some time, and I appreciate that, brother, uh, that you were so vigilant in making sure that, that we got that great interview. Thank you to Louise for being crazy enough to let us do it. Again, I want to remind you guys about Dollar Shave Club. I'm so appreciative of Dollar Shave Club. Without them and our other partners, we don't have the opportunity to do this podcast. So right now, go get yourself a starter set. You won't be disappointed. It's going to change your life. Just $5, like their new oral care kit. Go to dollarshaveclub.com slash smith. You can choose which starter set you want. They're going to send it to your door. And after that, the restock box ships regular-sized products at a regular price. There's really no reason to wait anymore. Get your starter set right now, just $5 at dollarshaveclub.com slash smith. Thank you guys for taking the time to listen. I'm so appreciative, and it means so much to me when you approach me and tell me that you're enjoying these interviews because it's different. I mean, it is. It's a different kind of podcast. It's not a bunch of cutting up like I enjoy so much on Marty and McGee, and Travis does too. We enjoy that so much. I just enjoy the opportunity to dive into people's journeys like Ryan's today. Uh, it's so interesting to me and always will be. Laney makes fun of me all the time because the only books I read are autobiographies. Or biographies. I'm not interested in, I'm not interested in a novel. I want to know real life, man. I want to know the scars. I want to know the obstacles. I want to know the triumphs and the failures because that's real life and that's what inspires me. So without you guys listening, there's no reason to do it. So thank you for that. Go to iTunes and subscribe, rate and review, please. Subscribe, rate, and review the Marty Smith America podcast. It matters to us, and we're appreciative when you do it. I also lastly want to thank our military. The United States of America is the best country in the world for a reason. It's our ladies and gentlemen in uniform, and that's never lost on me, and I'm so appreciative. And if y'all are in an airport or a restaurant or a gas station and you see somebody wearing one of those hats that says Vietnam veteran or World War II veteran or Desert Storm veteran, Walk over and say thank you. Take five seconds. And it means a lot to them. Because they're never going to boast. They're never going to trumpet their own service. They just did it. So thank you all. I appreciate it so much. And uh, have an amazing week. We'll see you next time around. This is the Marty Smith America podcast. We'll see you next time.